From Brown Cal Studios in Galton Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. We're starting the show this week with my interview with Natalia Melnichuk. In addition to working for Penn International, an association dedicated to advocacy for writers, poets, journalists, and people of the pen, Natalia works as a freelance journalist. After she left Ukraine on the second day of the Russian invasion, she traveled to the UK where she spoke to me. At the end of the show, Scott Horsley, NPR's chief economic mind, is back on the show. This week, we're discussing sanctions and how they affect national economies. It's Wednesday, March 9th, 2022, and this is News Nerds. <coughs> Natalia Melnichuk is a freelance journalist. She's also part of Penn International, a group that advocates for journalists, writers, and people of the pen. Thanks for being with us. I'm really happy that people in such distant country as the U.S. are interested in what's going on in, in Ukraine and show support. I received a lot of messages from Americans uh, about Ukraine and how things were going and offering help and everything. So I thank you for, for the interest. Well, everybody here is really rooting for you. And it's one of the few times that act- our Congress is bipartisan on anything. So that's interesting to see. Um, So you've been in Ukraine for a while, you just told me. Uh, What does Ukraine look like in normal times? Because many people, uh, you know, didn't really focus on Ukraine in normal times. And it sounds like a pretty uh, beautiful country. Yeah, it is. And it is a very cool place, actually, um, for tourists. Um, I have a lot of friends who visited Ukraine in the last uh, couple of years. Uh, we have, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say like we had, because I hope we still have and we will have um, a really great like restaurant scene and nightlife and um, I don't know, a lot of things to do during summer, for instance. In Kiev, we have a beautiful river with um, beaches and with like islands on it. and. I don't know. It's just it's just really pretty and also um, kind of it's vibrant. It's not boring <laughs> as many places in Europe. So a lot of a lot of Europeans also were coming to Ukraine for sort of like I don't know this feeling of of some some thrill, you know, like some fun. Yeah, yeah I've heard about you know people who who have you know gone from other European countries and even some who have have gone to Ukraine from Afghanistan just just six months after their country was invaded by the Taliban. So it it is kind of terrible to see all these conflicts come up. I haven't really, you know, uh, seen these kinds of conflicts a lot. What what was the relationships between Russia and Ukraine before this invasion? Because it seems like they had a strained relationship. Um, including when Russia invaded Ukraine the last time in 2014 and also Georgia in uh, 2008. And, you know, it seems like they're really, really not on the side of most European countries. Um, To say the least, like they are not. Um, So our relationship with Russia um, um, is long and complicated. Uh, Basically, we were Russian colony for many years, for like for centuries. Um, and for many centuries also, we were not allowed to like, speak Ukrainian or to publish books in Ukrainian. 
to have, I don't know, theater performances, anything, like any cultural life in, in, in Ukrainian was banned, um, also media. Um, and then Ukraine had a, like a short period of independence um, after the second, uh, during actually the First World War in 1917, 1918. And then it was sort of like <laughs> invaded by Bolsheviks, uh, communists. And then Ukraine became part of Soviet Union. And then, well, in Soviet Union, it was like it was. Um, we had an artificial famine where, by different estimates, uh, between three million and seven people died from hunger. Then the Second World War that actually went through the whole territory of Ukraine and then back when the Nazis were defeated and they went back to, well, to, to Germany. And then um, we also lived through repressions and um, Stalin's terror uh, and all these things. When Ukraine got a chance to become independent in 1991, there was a referendum uh, and 94% of people said yes to independence. And since then, we were trying to move towards Europe. And we were like trying to adopt what we call like European values, respect of human rights, uh, respect of law, even such thing as individualism instead of collectivism. And Russia, after 1994, when the president shot uh, tanks, like ta he ordered tanks to shoot at the parliament. That's where their democracy ended, basically. And then they also had the war with Chechnya. Uh, when um, it's like a small republic in Russia, and they wanted to become independent. And then Russians had two wars with them. Uh, and then, as you mentioned, they also attacked Georgia, and they also messed up with Moldova, and that's uh, this unrecognized republic of Transnistria. So Russia messed up in many places, like a lot. They were stirring, you know, like not really letting countries move in the directions where they want to move. Um, and also in the whole Russian like history and in the narrative that is prevailing, they think that Ukrainians and Russians and also Belarusians are pretty much the same people. So we have to go back and we have to stay together. So it's like, you know, an abuser who says, like, that's enough that I love you, so you have to be with me. You cannot go anywhere. So it's kind of this type of relationship. And I think that in the end, um, like after Putin annexed Crimea and then it didn't work, Ukraine did not sort of move towards Russia, quite the opposite. And then they attacked uh, Donbass. It's the eastern part of Ukraine and also occupied part of it. This also did not work, but it was an ongoing, slow sort of like not that hot war for eight years. Uh, and then suddenly when Ukraine again did not move towards Russia and we were strengthening our ties with the EU and also with NATO, suddenly decided to attack. And well, this is in brief um, our relationship. So it, it sounds like there was lots of conflict not you only with ukraine but uh, but uh, you know a lot of europe as well when you were in ukraine and you were on the ground did you feel that ukrainian infrastructure that that was needed in case of another invasion like bomb shelters and transportation out of major cities do you think that was ready for this and uh, and you know are those infrastructures holding up um, that's a good question because we had 
of bomb shelters and uh, that were marked as bomb shelters um, in 2014. But I think that not many people actually sensed that it's going to be war or they were like in denial, me including, until like very, almost very end. And I thought that because if I had the same facts, but about any other country, not Ukraine, I would think that, yeah, it's like 99.9% it's happening. But because I just didn't want it to happen irrationally, I just like didn't, didn't really believe in it. Um, so bomb shelters were, I think some people actually checked uh, where they are, but we didn't have enough and some of them were not ready. Uh, and we started actually getting ready quite late, I would say. So not many people, not all the people knew where they are. And also like, I had no idea that we have sirens that work and that you can hear all over the city. Uh, I never heard them since I was like a kid and we had like a training. Also, I had no idea that we have such an efficient air defense system, which was like a pleasant surprise to all of us. Um, actually, when I was in Ukraine and I was in my, like in, at, at my home for the second, on the second night of the invasion, the air defense, they shot down a rocket and it fell just 200 meters from my, my building. The sound was, I never heard it, never heard anything like this before. It was so loud and so unlike anything else really really scary and then it just like it burned the building next to me and this was like when i realized that yeah like this this is war this is happening there's no way of of denying it anymore so i have to like act to do something yeah yeah when i was you know listening to to news and reading articles uh, with uh, with ukrainians quoted in them it seemed like many of them um, you know, I talked to a journalist who said that many of them just, as you said, were kind of in denial about this. Is, is, was that a universal thing? Or was, was that, and also how did that change as forces built up? Um, you know, our government was actually in denial. Uh, I think they were trying to calm people down so that they don't panic. And for instance, you know, don't try to like, withdraw all the money from the banks or something so that we don't collapse as a, like as a country or something. I don't know what they thought, actually. I'm pretty sure they knew that this was going to happen because they had intelligence from our allies, allies and from, from the US. Um, and I think people did not believe that it's going to happen until the US and the UK and other countries started evacuating their embassies before the 16th. And 16th was the date, like 16th of, of uh, February was a date when the invasion was supposed to happen. And when it didn't happen, everybody was like, you know, it didn't happen. Maybe it's not going to happen. So it was like one thing when people got really like anxious. Then because it didn't happen, they kind of got relaxed a little bit until probably the last one or two days before it actually happened. So how did you get out of Ukraine? You got out on the second day of the invasion, as you said. There's been many methods out of the country, but I'm talking to somebody in uh, in a couple of days that had to walk all 45 miles out of Ukraine because no Ubers or you know any any trains or much and much less planes were available to get out of the country. How did you get out personally? Yeah, there were no planes since the first day, like at all. The whole Ukraine was closed for, for any commercial airlines. 
Um, and I spoke to a friend from Austria on the night of the invasion, like before that ha this happened. And he told me that he's very scared, scared that it's going to happen this night because Russia closed like uh, the, the sp airspace very close to our border. And he was persuading me to leave. And he said that I can come and pick you up even because it's really scary. I, 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 I'm sure that it's gonna, it, 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 it is going to start. So after this actually happened and we, some of my friends, they were going to leave on the first day, but they couldn't because there were massive traffic jams. A lot of people who had cars and who were like, you know, quite privileged. Like I don't have a car and I don't even drive. So we agreed that I'm going to go to that place and we will leave in the morning. Uh, we started going to the west in the western direction. Um, but then there were like military, military trucks and soldiers who were turning people around because they said that Russians are advancing. So we had to turn around and do like make all the way back in a huge traffic jam and then go to, to the south and then to the west. So it took us two and a half days to actually reach the border. And uh, we were going through some like military cities like um, Vasilkiv near Kiev, where they have an, an air base. And there were explosions while we were going there. And there were planes flying really low. And it was pretty scary, like all the way. Um, because we couldn't get like information what is what was going on while while we were driving. Um, so then we we reached the border. We tried to cross it, but like uh, to to Hungary, but the queues were massive, and Hungarians were not really well. I think they were letting people in, but they were doing it so slowly. So we were waiting for an hour, and the queue didn't move at all. Uh, and then we started searching for information how to cross anywhere, like to any other country we found out that on Romanian border, there were less cars and they were working faster. Uh, so we went there and there we crossed and um, my friend uh, picked me up, uh, me and uh, a mother of, of my friend uh, who is in the UK. And that's how I ended up here because he asked me to bring her to him. And then it took us another two days actually to cross another border with Romania and Hungary. And then to wait for the for the flight because all the flights were booked, I think, by by people who are trying to help um, their relatives to leave. And we saw many people like at the beginning, a lot of people who actually really could have afforded, you know, um, like people in really expensive cars, and um, like you could tell that you know they were not running yet from bombs and explosions. But we also saw people who were crossing on foot. Yeah, they were obviously in a less, like, less privileged, so to say, state. Right now, a lot of people who reach the border, especially with Poland, they are people who literally lost everything because Russia started bombing Ukrainian cities and towns just like as if they were empty. They know that there are civilians, but they still do it. And a lot of people are just like running and saving their lives. They don't have any belongings. Some, some of them just like, you know, are really happy that they managed to escape. So a lot of people like this are coming now to the border and they need a lot more help than people like me, let's say, who could speak the language, you know, and I had like friends and, and this, the network of support and stuff. So that, that, that's my story. And it's much, much, you know, much, much better than of anyone who had to leave in the middle of the night taking nothing. Yeah, and as we learn more about the actions of Russia, there's been more talk about war crimes. Based on what you've seen, 
it doesn't look like there were war crimes committed. Like even me, many, many miles away from Ukraine, can look online and see pictures of uh, a missile that luckily did not explode, but landed in the middle of a kindergarten. And, uh, you know, the UN, you know, the, according to their, their, their rules on wars and, and, their, and war crimes, that to me looked like a war crime. What, what about you? Absolutely. Like, uh, it's not only this thing. Uh, if you know Bellingcat and people who work for this project, Christo Grozev, for instance, they are documenting war crimes uh, that are happening in Ukraine and they said that it's massive. They cannot process all of them, but they are hoping that because the evidence is so clear and there are so many like pictures and so many video of, of uh, explosions and of like um, missiles shot in real time, how they are hitting, even like streets where people were evacuating from Irpin, for instance. Um, I also have friends who live near Kiev, these small towns that are right now occupied by Russians. A friend of a friend is right now among those like 40 people who were captured and they are being held, I don't know where, somewhere in a basement or something. That was less information that they received uh, that like clearly Russian troops were about to take the phone and the, the like the last information that that we received from uh, from those people is that they are being kept in in a basement and nobody knows what's going on with them and, uh, and also like that's mm-hmm. by russian troops yeah and yeah nobody nobody has access to them and so far my friend for like 3 days cannot reach cannot reach her friend who is who is staying there also, yesterday, they were trying, I don't know what, what they were aiming at, but two rockets almost hit um, a children's hospital in Kiev, and it made some damage. Also, yesterday, just like just yesterday, there was a family in Irpin, it's a city next to Kiev, which was heavily shelled. They were trying to evacuate, and the Red Cross was, was helping them. And then they were hit by um, a rocket that as far as I understand, cannot be shot like just randomly somewhere. Like you have to know where you shoot it. And a family of four people died while trying to escape. They were like civilians. They didn't have any weapons. It's like clearly visible. They just had suitcases. And things like this happen also in, in Kharkiv, in Chernihiv, in Mariupol. Mariupol is a city on the, on the sea that is right now controlled by Ukraine. But it's like on the way from Crimea to these unrecognized republics, Donetsk and Luhansk. And Russians badly want to take it, but they couldn't. And they're just like shelling it constantly for like five days. And also people don't have connections with um, their family. And I also have some friends who live there and or their, their parents live there. And nobody knows what's, what's going, on, going on. And the information that we receive is that the whole city is shelled. Like there's no area, no neighborhood, of a city of half a million people that was not shelled. And it's clear that there are civilians. There's like nothing, no military infrastructure. It's all outside of the city. But they are shelling it just, I don't even know why, like terrorizing or increasing the number of of civilian casualties so that maybe, I don't know, hoping that our president will say that, okay, just stop and we will do whatever you want but it's it's not happening 
it's it seems like the government there is now really it, they're really really being leaders here in the u.s everybody is watching Zelensky, and it's amazing what we're seeing and i think i can see say that without having an opinion it's a shared opinion with with all americans what is the reaction to the invasion where you are in the uk and and what are, are the english saying so far everyone who knew that i'm from ukraine uh, be it like british citizens or people from other countries who live here and work here uh, they all show only support uh, and it's amazing like just normal british people they are absolutely um absolutely supporting like in the air people in the airport they were just like you could clearly tell that they know what's ho- what's happening and they sympathize um but i think that the government like british government is a little bit behind the the british people uh, because they offer support and they they like collect help and humanitarian aid but the uk government does not offer any like temporary protection to ukrainian refugees um like in the eu you don't have to claim asylum uh, but you if you're running from the war in ukraine you can get temporary protection and here even families like they cannot bring their their family members easily um because there's no procedure for that uh, and for instance mother of my friend whom i brought here she cannot stay here unless she goes somewhere outside of the uk and applies and waits there for whatever time they need to process her application and so far they process maybe 50 um which is too too little but i hope that they will they will they will change it somehow like ireland they just cancelled all visas for ukrainians so that they can come and stay for like some time well natalia thank you so much and i wish you the best and i really hope that you can go back to ukraine and that it will still be under ukrainian control yeah i hope so. I, I it's there's nothing in 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 the world that i want more than to go home and to sleep in my bed you know and water my plants uh, i wish i i could do that and let's hope that i will soon <laughs> yeah Natalia Melnichuk is a freelance journalist. She's also part of Penn International. Scott Horsley is NPR's chief economics uh, correspondent. He joins us again. Welcome back to the program. Good to be back with you, Ezra. So uh, we've been hearing a lot about sanctions, more than we usually have. What exactly are sanctions and how do they work to put some strain on, uh, in this case, the Russian economy? You know, sanctions is an interesting word in English. It can mean both official uh, praise or recognition or in this case, uh, official punishment. Uh, and in this case, uh, the U.S. and its and its allies in, in Europe and the G7 uh, 
have have teamed up to impose pretty severe economic sanctions on Russia, basically cutting off a lot of Russia's connections to the international community, uh, freezing accounts uh, in foreign banks, freezing foreign reserves, making it hard for Russia to prop up the ruble, saying that uh, we will seize the assets of Russian oligarchs, uh, that is uh, wealthy wealthy businessmen with ties to, to Putin, cutting off some Russian banks and, and businesses. Uh, and then just today, the United States on its own said uh, that we would not buy any oil imported from Russia. So all of this is designed to uh, kind of put an economic squeeze on, on Russia's economy, the Russian people, and, and hopefully change uh, Vladimir Putin's calculation about this invasion of Ukraine. Now, I will say the the history of economic sanctions is not really reassuring. It doesn't very often change people's behavior. For example, we've had sanctions on Iran for a long time. We've had sanctions on North Korea for a long time. We've had sanctions on Venezuela for a long time, or shorter time, but sanctions on Venezuela. It doesn't very often work to change the behavior of the, the country that's being sanctioned, but that's the, that's the goal here. Now, you mentioned the latest uh, ban, which is on Russian oil. We're, we're recording this on Tuesday, uh, and this episode's going to be out on Wednesday afternoon. Um, as of now, that's what the, one of the latest significant bans. Um, tell me about this, and, and what is the significance of this? Is this, a big, is this a big ban, or is it not going to be significant for the Russian economy? Right. When... when the U.S. and its allies targeted Russia with these pretty serious economic sanctions. They left kind of a carve out for Russian energy, mostly oil and natural gas. Russia is a big producer of both. Uh, and the reason for that was the, the feeling was if you if you cut off Russian oil exports or Russian natural gas exports, you'd also be punishing the people who who depend on those pr primarily in Europe. Uh, as I said, the U.S. doesn't buy a whole lot of oil from Russia. So it's not a huge thing for the U.S. to say we're not going to buy anymore. We weren't buying that much to start with. Um, it's it's more of a symbolic move, I think, on the part of the Biden administration here to to, to do this. The, uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine had, had urged the U.S. to do so. Uh, members of Congress were sort of rallying around a, a bill that would have forced the president to do so. So this is kind of a way for the president to get ahead of that pressure. But in terms of in terms of money flowing to Russia, it's not a huge amount. In terms of oil flowing to the U.S., it's not a huge amount. So it has some symbolic value, but it's it's not going to raise the stakes that much for, for Putin. The Europeans have so far not joined in in saying they're not going to buy oil or natural gas from, from Russia. If they did, it would be a, a much bigger deal. It would it would cut off a lot more revenue to, to, to uh, Russia, but it would also... Uh, pose a real hardship for those European countries that are heavily dependent on Russian energy. So in, in short, Russian oil is, is not one of, the biggest, um, one of the biggest imports to the United States, but European countries nearby have more of that oil coming from Russia. Um, that's, so, that's right. So, so is Putin noticing these sanctions in Russia and in our everyday Russians noticing these in their everyday lives? Or are, are these sanctions just not enough to put any strain on the oligarchs, Putin, and Russian citizens who, 
who who are uh, still living in Russia and dealing with these consequences? Yeah, it's these are definitely uh, having an impact on ordinary Russians, and I think that impact will probably grow over time. Uh, the value of the ruble has fallen sharply uh, against the dollar and other currencies. So anything that Russia imports is is significantly more expensive now than it was before. Uh, and Russia relies on imports for a lot of things like like medicine. Um, ju just today, we've seen McDonald's saying they're pulling out of Russia, Coca-Cola, other other big U.S. companies are dropping their ties to Russia. Some of the big energy companies are, are saying they will no longer invest in Russia. Uh, but yes, ordinarily, ordinary Russians are definitely feeling this. Uh, there have been lines at ATMs, people, Russians trying to take money out of the bank to, to, to convert their rubles into some other currency that they think might hold its value better, or maybe just into stuff before it loses any more purchasing power. Uh, some of the oligarchs have had their luxury yachts seized, and there have been some high profile things like that. Uh, I don't know that the oligarchs have really felt the squeeze yet. I mean, they're they're wealthy people who are pretty well insulated, but uh, you know, if you have your if you have your mega yacht uh, padlocked and you can't go on it, that that might be a little bit of a hardship. Again, whether any of this is enough to make Vladimir Putin think twice uh, is is another question. But there's no no doubt that ordinary Russians are are feeling the impact of of these sanctions. And, and that's not necessarily the goal of the United States. I mean, uh, our, the beef of the United States is not with the Russian people. We're not necessarily trying to cause hardship for them. And it's not the sort of government where you would necessarily expect discontent in the public to, to force Vladimir Putin's hand. I mean, it's not a democracy in the same way that ours is, where you know public sentiment is something Vladimir Putin necessarily has to pay a whole lot of attention to. What could put strain on oligarchs and and Putin, who are are behind these decisions? Is there anything that the U.S. can do, or its allies in Europe and abroad, to to put a bigger strain on these wealthy Russians? Well, mo most of those uh, levers have been pulled now. I mean, mo most of those sanctions have been uh, put into place, and and it's the kind of thing where they may take some time to have have their full effect but it you know it's going to be hard now for oligarchs who like spending time in europe who like shopping in milan or you know vacationing on the french riviera or maybe you have a luxury condo in london it's going to be harder for them to travel now and take advantage of those things uh, if they have uh, bank accounts in other countries they, they may be frozen now so the they're they're all those steps have been have been taken and and over time they may feel the bite whether that's enough to change putin's calculation about the war is another question here in america we've been seeing higher gas prices and it and you know i've been listening for example to npr this morning and uh, a martinez in in la i think he is he said that the gas price was more than five dollars a gallon which is kind of astounding are these uh, what are you what are you paying in utah these days uh, here, uh, in the West, that Western United States, it's definitely not that high. It's, it's around three Cal Cal high, yeah, Cal high $3 range. Yeah. California always has some of the most expensive gas yeah. in the country for a number of reasons. They're, they're kind of a, an Island. They have their own formulation. So there's not a lot of, uh, opportunities to bring in fuel from other parts of the country. But I, I know this is some of you who live in California, but the national average at, on, on Tuesday, as we tape this hit 
$4.17 a gallon today, and that's a, that's a record high in nominal terms. In real terms, that is adjusted for inflation, it's not, it's not an all-time high. It was, it's cheaper in real terms than it was back in 2008, for example, the last time the price topped $4 a gallon. But, but $4.17 is definitely a, the kind of number that catches your eye as you drive past the gas station. Anytime you see a, a four in, in front there, that's, that's pretty pricey. Uh, and it and it may go a little bit higher. All this talk about uh, sanctions on the energy markets has has caused a big spike in in crude oil prices, and and that usually gets passed along pretty quickly to uh, to gasoline customers. Scott, thanks. It's my pleasure. In addition to being an all around cool guy, Scott Horsley is NPR's chief economics reporter. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras. You can also listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. While you're there, please subscribe to the podcast. While you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. Another way to listen is by listening every other week on Thursdays at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KJVM Community Radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you are not in the Gallatin Valley area, go to KJVM's website, kgvm.org, to listen on their live stream.